You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This week, the Trump administration said the Affordable Care Act should be struck down entirely. A course change because they'd only been trying to eliminate parts of Obamacare. As the federal government tries to figure out how to bring down the cost of health care, states are taking their own steps. Here in Colorado, Governor Jared Polis thinks the answer lies in something called reinsurance. A reinsurance program for the highest cost cases is a proven solution to reduce health care costs. It's worked in other states. It's one we should embrace in Colorado to save small businesses and individuals money. Is he right? And what the heck is reinsurance? The state's insurance commissioner is here. Michael Conway, welcome to the program. Good morning, Rand. Thank you for having me. And from New York, economist Sarah Collins. She's vice president with the Commonwealth Fund, which supports independent research into health care. And hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi. 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 <laughs> Sarah, let, let's start with you. This has been described as insurance for insurance companies, a way to cover the sickest and most expensive patients. Can you help us understand how that translates to savings for the general public? Sure. So reinsurance pays insurers for part of their costs when they have, in the case of healthcare, very sick patients. Um, Because it reduces some of their risk of high costs, insurers have more confidence that they won't suffer big losses in marketplaces um, like Colorado Connect. Um, This means that they're more likely to stay in the market and, and to set their premiums lower than they might otherwise. The uh, Affordable Care Act had a temporary federal reinsurance program in its first three years to encourage insurers to participate in the marketplaces. And this was at a time when insurers were really worried that a lot of people with health problems might enroll and they'd suffer losses. Um, Because of that reinsurance program, that federal program, premiums were as much as 14% lower than they might otherwise have been. Hmm. Unfortunately, um, the reinsurance um, program in the Affordable Care Act phased out, and Congress has not renewed it, even though there really is bipartisan support in Congress for doing some kind of reinsurance program. And so you're seeing states get on this bandwagon. Uh, so just to tease reinsurance out a bit more, uh, this focuses on the healthcare consumers who are the most expensive. Is it sort of redistributing that risk? Put a finer point on it for us. So it's just protecting insurers from really high costs. So insurers might have um, might um, set their premiums at a certain level, um, and but it, but some of their patients, some of their enrollees might have really catastrophic healthcare costs, which shoot their claims costs way up. Uh-huh. And so reinsurance comes in and and offsets some of those costs for them, and presumably then brings all of our premiums down collectively. That's exactly right. Okay. We spoke with Alaska's insurance director. That's Lori Wing Heyer. Uh, Hers was the first state to establish its own reinsurance program. Our rates since 2018, the first two years of the program, we have seen a decrease in our individual market premiums of close to 30%. We most definitely attribute it to the reinsurance program. We think it has helped stabilize the market and lower premiums, making it more accessible for those that are not eligible for the premium tax credits offered by the federal government. That means that even people who don't get subsidies on the exchange apparently saved money. She also tells us Alaska started the program because it was down to just one health insurer in the whole state. That's going to be familiar to folks in rural 
Colorado. Uh, do, do you have this sense uh, that this can stabilize the market as well and keep insurers offering uh, plans in places? Absolutely, and and we know we know that because seven states are running reinsurance programs now. They've gotten approval um, from the federal government to establish these programs, like like Alaska, and these the what they've seen, like Alaska, um, a decline in premiums um, in every state. Um, and they've also seen a stabilization in terms of the participation of their insurers. So it's held insurers in the market. Can you address the huh factor here? In other words, if this has a proven track record in the states where it's working, why wouldn't Congress just jump on it for the country? And why would it only be seven states and not 50 well, that's a great question. And we know, like I said, that there's bipartisan support for reinsurance um, in, in Congress. Um, it would help, help. I mean, it's great that seven states have done this so far, but it means that a lot of other states don't have these reinsurance programs. It's, uh, there is a lot of effort involved in getting them up and running. Um, you have to get approval um, from the federal government to do it if you want to get some of the savings um, that Alaska got, for example. So some, some of the savings you get from um, lower premiums, it means lower subsidies, and the federal government gives those savings back to states to offset some of their costs. But it's complicated to get um, to get this in place. Um, we There are about five to six other states that are looking at this too right now, um, but there is, there is some effort involved in getting it off the ground. Okay, but I think this also demonstrates that logic does not always work in politics or health care. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> Maybe that's part of this. Okay, Michael Conway, uh, as the state's insurance commissioner, I'm curious how much you believe Coloradans might be able to save with a proposal like this uh, that we might see come out of the legislature this session. Thank you, Ryan. So we are we're targeting a 20 percent premium decrease on average across the state, but in certain that's parts on the of, individual that's on, market. That is right? correct. That's, okay. a, that's just on the individual market. So, but uh, in certain parts of the state, in our highest cost areas, so in those rural counties that you were talking about, where we're down to the the one insurance company where we just have Anthem. I think of mountain towns in particular. Exactly, the mountain towns. We're actually targeting a 30 percent premium decrease. Those are our highest cost areas in the state in the individual market, um, and they're actually some of the highest cost areas in the entire country. So we're, we're looking forward to bringing down their premiums all the way up to 30%. Okay. And that would put it in line with what they've seen in Alaska, for instance. Correct. Uh, okay. Well, we heard Sarah describe that this can be an uphill battle. You have to go to the federal government and get their permission. You have to figure out how you're going to pay for this. Uh, do you expect that there will be a bill that comes out of the legislature this session and that the governor signs. I absolutely expect it. I don't. I, not only do I expect it, I know it's going to happen. So we will be the eighth state that passes the bill, um, passes the, the legislation in order to allow us to go to the federal government in order to, to apply for that 1332 waiver, which actually allows us to set this up. The pay for the is good the, old 1332 good old waiver. 1332. Okay. Uh, you know, it's gotten pretty ugly down at the state legislature this session. Does this have bipartisan support in Colorado? It has both bipartisan support in the House and in the Senate. Right, right in the Senate. Okay. Uh, this would be paid for, as we heard, partly through the savings from the federal subsidies that go to customers on the individual market, and partly in this proposal by reducing how much hospitals are reimbursed for the most expensive patients. As a result, hospital, uh, hospitals aren't too happy with this proposal. The Colorado Hospital Association put out a press release 
calling this particular funding mechanism unfair and untested. Catherine Mulready is CHA's chief strategy officer. She says hospitals like reinsurance in general, but oppose this way of funding it. Specifically, rate setting that means significant cuts to what providers get paid to deliver health care services. And the Hospital Association says it favors a model similar to one used in other states, where there would be an upfront fee on hospitals and insurers to pay for this reinsurance program. Is there room for compromise here? So I think, Rand, that our focus, the reason our focus is on cost savings is because um, over the last 10 years, the, the state has taken steps to really bolster the amount that hospitals get paid and to kind of embrace the fact that we need to support hospitals and the hospital systems. We've done that with Medicaid expansion. We did that with the hospital provider fee. And the return That was on, its own bitter fight it in was the legislature. Multiple bitter, bitter uh, fights. Yeah. But we've gotten that through, and we've gotten that through in a bipartisan way with the understanding that there was supposed to be some return on investment for our commercial markets so that the cost shift, the, what the, the hidden tax on health care was supposed to go to go away to some degree. But that hasn't happened. The hospitals, the hospitals premiums have just continued to gone up. Their margins have continued to gone up. So where we think this actually makes sense is where we're going to the hospitals and we're saying, we think that there is some fat to be taken out of the system. We think that we can actually pay for our reinsurance program through cost savings. And that's been the biggest stumbling block in other states, Ryan, is, is that exact pay for it. And because most states States don't like the idea, and the governor doesn't like the idea of asking the business community to subsidize the individual market. Okay, so you're essentially telling hospitals there's fat to cut. You're not finding it. We're going to make you find it. I think what we're telling hospitals is that you you told us that you were going to find the fat to cut, and that didn't happen. Okay, and now we're going to step in and try and find that fat for you. Okay, Sarah Collins with the Commonwealth Fund. As we've described it, this seems like Shangri-La. What are what are the criticisms of the reinsurance model? You know, there really aren't many downsides to reinsurance. Like I said, like I you know, said, there's the they've been very successful in the states that have implemented them, and it was very successful at the federal level. I think the from a state's perspective, um, the conversation that we just had shows that the viability of funding over time, um, even with the savings from the federal government, is probably the biggest um, the biggest difficulty. Um, states are funding their reinsurance programs through a lot of different ways. Um, Colorado's approach is highly innovative and Make, may make funding more stable over time, but there are obviously the the politics involved at the state level and and, and moving forward on this. So, and from a national perspective, um, um, leaving it up to states um, means that a lot of people in other states that don't get the reinsurance programs um, are are left with with higher premiums and maybe dwindling insurer insurer participation. Right, you've got this unevenness across the country if states are having to go it. Alone, I guess in just the last few seconds here, we have two healthcare minds on the program. I'm interested in your reaction to what we've seen from the Trump administration, from its Justice Department, uh, asking essentially for the Affordable Care Act to be thrown out altogether. Michael Conway is insurance commissioner in the state. Do you want to comment briefly? Sure. So I don't think it actually changes anything as far as the lawsuit is concerned, that the same basic arguments are going to be in play. And if we if we made it through the 2017 repeal and replace constant battle, uh, I, I'm confident that we're going to be able to keep our market stable in Colorado and we're going to be able to march ahead. How about just a few words, Sarah Collins? 
You know, I really can't overstate um, from a national perspective how disruptive um, um, that would be were it to were it to be upheld. Um, obviously, nothing will happen immediately. This will probably if, if it goes on to the Supreme Court, but mm. the re, the entire repeal of the law or the wiping out of the law would be enormously disruptive both to people who have gained coverage, twenty million people um, through the coverage expansions, including the marketplaces, um, but also just hospitals, and it has really touched every corner of our healthcare system. At this point, Sarah Collins there from the Commonwealth Fund and Colorado Insurance Commissioner Michael Conway talking about the idea of reinsurance to bring down the costs of health care and also new moves from the Trump administration. You're with CPR News. Colorado has scrapped its old logo. It was a green triangle with a dollop of white meant to look like a snowy peak, and there was a big C.O. in the middle. It always bothered historian Jennifer Goodland, who lives on the eastern plains, because... Mountains. It's all mountains. And when I get tourists coming into the Colorado Welcome Center in Lamar... Uh, you know, the fact that Colorado is heavily represented in our icons by mountains to the exclusion of the plains actually leads to uh, a fair number of tourists, you know, thinking that the plains don't even exist in Colorado. Well, Governor Jared Polis has rolled out a new logo. It borrows the sea from the state flag, then adds an evergreen and blue mountains. Jennifer Goodland, speaking from Lamar, acknowledged it's beautiful, but thought once again, it's missing the plains. I think if it was just a straight line, it could be a very simple concept like that at the bottom part of any part of the logo to represent the plains. But when Governor Polis unveiled this new logo, he explained that it's actually more inclusive. The red for earth, the blue for water, and the gold? Why, that's for the wheat fields of the Great Plains. Jennifer Goodland says she had to eat her words or maybe snack on them. I'm glad Polis has acknowledged that the old logo had some problems. And this new logo actually is a lot more beautiful than the old one. I'd like to see something that's more plains-ish because I think the gold is going to be taken not as wheat fields, but it's going to be taken as either sunshine, which it is on the Colorado state flag, or it's going to be taken like gold is in the gold rush. I mean, again, I think a straight line would have been better, but if they're trying, then I have to give them credit for that. As I said, this new logo will look familiar because it's reminiscent of the state flag, which Polis calls iconic and full of brand equity. So we wondered, is there a good story behind the state flag? It turns out there is, because it's based on a mistake. With us to explain is Brian Trembath of the Denver Public Library. Hi, Brian. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. So what is this mistake that the current flag is based on? Well, in 1910, some representatives of the uh, Daughters of the American Revolution were getting together, and they decided that it was a terrible thing that Colorado did not have a state flag. And they said state loyalty is too precious ever to be lost. So they uh, set about designing their own flag. But there was, in fact, already a flag um, (laughs) that had just a couple years before the state had commissioned a flag that was more like other states have. You know, the state seal just on blue. Not much to it, really. I I uh, guess unremarkable enough that people didn't know even of its existence. And that's partially because it was kept in a custodian's closet at the Capitol. And they hardly used it at all, if, if at all. So they put out the call for a new flag. Do they realize at some point that there was a flag already? And then they just decided, you know what, let's come up with something better. 
Pretty much. Yeah, they just decided to go with this. I, I feel like from my research that the DAR, the Daughters of the American Revolution, had a lot of pull um, with the state legislature. And they got what they wanted, and they got it very quickly. They put out the call, I suppose, for designs. And mm-hmm. a man named Andrew Carlisle Carson comes along. Tell us about him. You know, we don't know much about him, but he put together the flag that we know today with two horizontal stripes of Yale blue and one white stripe, all of equal width, and a large C uh, with gold center and a red in the middle, with, of course, each piece, you know, symbolizing some part of the state. Yeah, let's talk about what each of the colors represents. So uh, the Yale blue, uh, what does it represent? The blue is, and this is from the actual official designation, Senate Bill 118, that passed May 6, 1911. The Yale blue stripes stand for the ever-smiling skies of the Rocky Mountain region. I love uh, describing the sky as ever-smiling. Okay, run us through the other colors. The white stripe typifies the white metal silver in whose production Colorado also leads the entire galaxy of states. So silver production... (laughs) at that time was probably greatly reduced, but was still one of our main uh, things. And then blue and white together gives us the colors of the Columbine. Oh, and of course, the uh, gold center uh, is sunshine. Do you think that uh, among state flags, Colorado's is particularly successful or unusual? In comparison to most state flags, it's always had a very contemporary feel. In fact, I can kind of remember as a child thinking that it must have been something that was designed relatively recently, because it always felt a little more modern, mainly because it didn't use the state seal at all and has no Latin words. Thank you so much for being with us. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Brian Trembath of the Denver Public Library on how Colorado doesn't just scrap logos, it also dumped its first flag. Where the snowy peaks gleam in the moonlight So far, Governor Jared Polis has not supported state lawmakers' efforts to shield undocumented immigrants from federal authorities. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry found his stance has been crushing to immigration advocates. The big goal for those advocates was a bill to block state agencies from handing over information about immigrant Coloradans to ICE without a warrant. But it was killed off before even being introduced because of Polis's hesitations. Speaking to Colorado Matters, the governor says he wants sheriffs and police to figure out their own way when working with ICE, without a one-size-fits-all approach from his office. These relationship between local law enforcement and federal law enforcement is an extremely important relationship, and we're not about to tell law enforcement what their relationship with other law enforcement agencies should be. Immigration advocates say they're extremely disappointed in Polis, who was known nationally during his time on Capitol Hill as a fierce defender of immigrant rights. He constantly urged for a path to citizenship in discussions on immigration reform. And we pushed so hard for him to become governor. Josie Martinez is the board president of the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition. She first heard Polis speak in 2017 and felt like she had found the person to fight for her. And so I became really disappointed when I found out that he was not supporting us in this because I was like, how is it that you came and got all of our support, at least the people that were able to vote? I don't know, it kind of felt like it was like a big joke to him or like that maybe we, our community, was a joke to him and he just got what he wanted. 
Asked whether he's done an about-face since becoming governor, Polis pointed out he recently appointed a DACA recipient to a college board and has joined Attorney General Phil Weiser in suing the Trump administration for holding up federal police grants to cities that don't work fully with immigration authorities. So I certainly stand with our immigrant communities uh, in our Colorado for All. We value everybody's contribution to our state, and we want everybody to thrive. Immigration advocates have given up on their most ambitious goal for this year. But some are still hoping for a lesser victory, a ban on detainers, which is when local police hold someone for longer than their sentence or after they've posted a cash bond until ICE can come pick them up. Advocates also want to put a barrier between the state's probation department and ICE. They don't want immigration authorities to be able to pick people up when they're fulfilling probation requirements, like alcohol treatment classes. Denise Mays at the American Civil Liberties Union is pushing this scaled-back effort. It is a lot less than what is was hoped for, and I think that is primarily uh, because we have received certain signals from the governor's office that as robust and as bold as we want it to be in this immigration law, we're not going to be able to get there. For their part, advocates hope to appeal to the polis they knew when he was in Washington. Hans Meyer is a Denver immigration attorney. He's represented dozens of people picked up by ICE while fulfilling state probation requirements. He hopes to continue to work with the governor. We need him, you know, and uh, I trust that he has the judgment and the nuance and the integrity uh, to reflect what his values were as a congressman. Polis's stance on not interfering with relationships between local police and immigration authorities potentially puts Democratic lawmakers in a tough spot, too. Democratic House Speaker Casey Becker declined to talk about her negotiations on immigration with Polis's office or why certain bills have died early deaths. But she did say she hoped to get something done. It's a big part of our community. And right now, with the current administration, people don't always feel safe. They don't feel safe reporting crimes. They don't feel safe going to a lot of public spaces. Uh, That's not the kind of Colorado that we want. So if we can find a way that we can legislatively address their concerns at the state, that's what we're going to do. But with the new governor drawing a local control line in the sand and immigrant advocates pushing him to go further, it's hard to see how a compromise will work out, especially in the 30 or so days left in this legislative session. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Denver's brown cloud is an albatross. The smoggy haze was especially bad in the 1970s and 80s, but it's still an issue despite cleanup efforts. Well, a recent study asks if a green cloud from marijuana grows might play into this. William Vizuete is a professor of environmental engineering at the University of North Carolina. He co-wrote this study conducted in Denver and spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, happy to be here. You've been studying what effect growing marijuana could have on the air that we breathe. Could we actually have a green cloud that violates federal air quality standards like the brown cloud has in the past? So as it turns out, gases are being produced by these plants, uh, volatile organic compounds. And we're actually quite familiar with a lot of these gases because they have a particularly strong odor. Uh, For example, that Christmas tree smell or that pine smell is a volatile organic compound called alpha-pinene. Or one of my favorite smells, lavender, is a a volatile organic compound called linalool. Marijuana plants also produce gases or volatile organic compounds. And that was one of the first things that we found out. I should be really clear on this. So volatile organic compounds by themselves 
aren't harmful to you. Uh, lots of us breathe that in and they're not very harmful. It's when those gases mix together with other gases, such as the nitrogen oxides being produced by car combustion, and in the sunlight, they actually react and form uh, some of those particles that we see or ozone in the atmosphere. And so the question is, first off, do these plants produce these gases? And it seems to suggest the evidence that I have that they do. The next question is, is there enough of these plants to produce enough of these gases? And do enough of them go into the atmosphere to react with um, what's already present in Denver to contribute both to indoor and outdoor air quality? And that's the next step of that investigation that I'm trying to find out. And you're talking quite a bit about smells related to volatile organic compounds. Is that the notorious weed smell that we're talking about? That is a type of gas that is being produced by the um, plants, but it's one that does not participate as much in the formation of air pollution. So I do understand that odor is a significant problem, and it is a problem. And those are gases that are being produced by the, these plants. But I'm talking about a different kind of uh, classes of compounds. Uh, these are gases that we have known in our community that participate in the production of air pollution in the atmosphere. And I should also note that these gases could participate in those same reactions inside these facilities where the concentrations of these gases are probably much higher than what you would find in the ambient atmosphere. And surely there are other similar plants to cannabis that have been studied for their potential effects on air quality. Why study cannabis and not, say, tomatoes or tobacco? Well, as it turns out, we already have. For the past 20 or so years, our community has spent a considerable time and effort developing methods and building databases, trying to understand the amount of gases that come from tomato plants, from trees and pecans. And in fact, if you look at all the volatile organic compounds that are produced all over the planet, 90% of those gases come from plants. Only 10% of those come from people. So if we are able to understand in our air quality models, in our understanding of how air pollution forms, we really need to understand the contribution that plants have to the atmosphere. Now, all of those methods and technologies I then used and applied them to cannabis for the first time, and that's why we were able to estimate exactly what the amount and type of emissions that are coming from cannabis. Uh, so we've used these same methods and technologies, but they've never been able to be applied to cannabis because it's a, a federally illicit substance. And how do you actually do it? How do you measure emissions coming off of cannabis plants? So what we actually do is we get a bag and we enclose the entire plant in a bag, a Teflon bag. We then purge the air in the bag such that the only air that's coming out of that bag is the air that's being produced by the plant. Uh, we then capture those gases and then we bring them back uh, with my colleagues at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, helped us right there in Boulder, Colorado. We then run them through instruments that allow us to understand their composition. And from that, we can then also estimate the amount that comes from these plants. And I want to get a sense of the relative impact marijuana could have on the air in Denver. I understand that there's more research that you want to do, but could you estimate how significant it is compared to other industries, say oil and gas? And that's an excellent question, and that's really a, a real challenge. Um, you can imagine we could try and go and measure air pollution in Denver and try to tease out what the contribution is to the cannabis industry. But that'd be very difficult because of all the intermingling of sources that are occurring there in Denver. So the only other tool that we have that we could use to answer that particular question are air quality models, where I could build a computer model that does all the meteorological things that we see in Denver and has all the emissions from cars and the oil and gas and also the cannabis industry. I then run that computer model and then remove the cannabis industry from that computer model and rerun it again 
And then I can see what the difference is between those two model predictions. So I'm beginning to do that right now. And what I'm running into is that there is just not a lot of information out there to allow me to accurately create what we call an inventory of emissions from the cannabis industry uh, for lots of reasons. And so what I'm trying to do at this point, I have, I'm working with the state of Colorado. They let me have their regulatory air quality model and I'm building the inventory now as we speak and I'm going to run those models and I'll be able to assess how significant of a public health issue this is. And depending on the results of your research, could you see this resulting in potential new regulation for the industry? So you could look to other uh, industries that also produce volatile compounds. Uh, think of um, gas stations or any place that's uh, degreasing an engine, for example, or using solvents or, or spraying things. All those things produce gases, right, man-made gases. And if you're that facility, you have to uh, uh, rely on a permit and you have to be able to capture those gases before they enter the atmosphere. So the control technologies that could be applied to capturing gases from the cannabis industry are pretty well known. They just haven't been optimized for the cannabis industry. So if it turns out that these VOCs do contribute significantly to air pollution, then some of that technology that we use in other industries can be applied uh, to the cannabis industry. And has there been any response from people who do grow marijuana? Uh, they're very supportive. They're very interested. Um, you know, they didn't realize that this could be an issue. And, you know, that's what we're trying to um, educate folks, that this could be a possible issue that we need to look into. I've really had nice cooperation with the folks that I've interacted with. And what comes next? Tell me more about your follow-up research. Sure. So like I said, I'm trying to build that inventory now so I can produce that model prediction. Those results will let us do two things. One, it help us begin to understand what is the, the question. How, you know, how significant is this uh, industry compared to other industries in, in Denver? But it also lets us know what sort of information I really need uh, to get a more accurate estimate. The other thing I was on working, trying to work very closely with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and uh, they're very interested in this work, and I'm working with them to try to uh, get our hands around this problem and generate more data. William, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. This was a lot of fun. William Vizuete, speaking with my colleague Avery Lill. Vizuete is a professor of environmental engineering at the University of North Carolina. He's studying the effects of marijuana grows on Metro Denver's air quality. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's talk about trust, because the question of trustworthiness takes on new dimensions in the digital age. Think about hopping into a stranger's car, even though they're not a licensed taxi driver. CPR's Brad Turner introduces us to a woman you can trust on this topic. Rachel Botsman has built a career on the subject of trust. The easiest way to think of trust is that it's a bridge between the known and the unknown. Botsman teaches at Oxford University. She studies how we perceive trust in banks, governments, and other institutions, and how that trust is changing. It's like the social glue that holds society together. Botsman talked about trust, and particularly how trust in digital spaces can be hard to define at the Aspen Ideas Festival recently. She says when we stay at someone else's house through Airbnb, that requires some trust. 
When we become a host on Airbnb and let other people rent our home for the night, that requires more trust. And it's the users who decide who's trustworthy, not the business itself. Because trust is something that is given to you. You can't decide to rebuild trust. You can decide to be more trustworthy. Other people decide whether to give their trust. I think about trust as a continual process of something that is given to you. Botsman says trust has fascinated her since she was just five years old when her parents hired a nanny to look after Rachel and her brother. And I'll never forget the woman who came into our house. She was a woman called Doreen. And she had this big mop of curly hair and she wore these big glasses. She had this very, very thick Scottish accent. And the thing I remember so distinctly is that she was wearing a navy uniform with a bonnet because she had told my parents the reason why she wanted to be a nanny was that she loved helping people and that she was a member of the Salvation Army. Now, all these things, the Scottish accent, the glasses, the Salvation Army uniform, they are what we call trust signals. And trust signals are very important. They are clues or symbols that we knowingly or unknowingly use to decide whether someone is trustworthy or not. Now, the unfortunate thing is that some signals are louder than others. And very untrustworthy people often know how to manipulate these signals. Now, Doreen lived with us for almost 10 months. And I remember her being very cheerful and reliable and fun to be around. And there wasn't anything really strange about her. And then one weekend, she disappeared. And by Sunday night, my parents were quite worried. So they went round to our neighbor's house, because our nanny was friendly with their nanny, and said, you wouldn't know where Doreen is by any chance. And he said, well, it's really funny that you've come round, because I've just found out that your nanny and our nanny are running the largest drugs ring in North London. I love this story because I like to remind my parents that they left me in the care of a drug-dealing armed bank robber for more than 10 months of my life. Um, My parents, they are actually smart people. (laughs) They are usually quite rational people. But they thought they had enough information to make a decision about Dory, when in reality they faced something called a trust gap. And this is so important when it comes to trust, that the illusion of information can be far more dangerous than ignorance. Botsman's fascination with trust never went away. She's especially interested in how new digital technologies have altered our concept of trust. Has new technology made us smarter about deciding who to trust? Or has it sped things up and made it more confusing when we think about who's trustworthy? She illustrated this idea with a quick survey of the audience in Aspen. She put the logos of three big tech companies on a screen behind her. Google, Facebook, and Amazon. You now can clap. I want you to clap for the company that you trust the most. You can only clap once, right? So if you think that you trust Google the most, clap now. If you trust Facebook the most, clap now. Okay. Um, If you think Amazon, you trust Amazon the most, clap now. 
Okay, so I think Amazon is the clear winner there. Now, why did I make you do this exercise? Because it's a rubbish exercise. It's, it's a terrible exercise, and I did it for that reason. Because this is how we talk about trust. Do you trust this person? Do you trust this institution? Do you trust this company? And we forget this really basic point. To do what? Because trust is so contextual and subjective. Amazon is a really interesting one. I think you're clapping because when you place an order with Amazon, you trust that it's going to arrive within the next hour or the next day. If I'd asked you, do you trust that Amazon pays fair taxes or treats their employees well, we would have got a really different response. So this is really important when we keep hearing about trusting crisis or we don't trust this person or we don't trust that organization. We must keep in mind that trust is highly subjective and it's highly contextual. Botsman broke down three types of trust that have covered thousands of years of human history. For most of that time, there was local trust. It's when we lived in small villages and communities and trust was largely face-to-face. Then came the rise of urban areas and international trade and a new kind of trust. So we invented what we call institutional trust. We invented corporate brands. We invented intermediaries. We invented risk mechanisms. And trust stopped flowing directly between people and started to flow between institutions. And those two historic types of trust are still around, but they're being disrupted by a new kind of trust for our digital age. That we call distributed trust. And it's a trust in sort of going like full circle, is flowing again between individuals through networks and systems and platforms. But it can operate in ways and on a scale that we've never seen before. And distributed trust forces us to think differently about platforms like Facebook and Uber. They're not institutions in the classic sense. So much of the activity is distributed among users. But when something goes wrong like anonymous trolls spreading false headlines or Uber passengers abusing the rating system for drivers, we still look for an institutional answer to the problem. There's one concept that a lot of commentators call for at a time like this. Greater transparency. Botsman thinks that's the wrong answer. Now, what's interesting is that when people don't really understand the problem, or when a system has got so big, like when it's a network monopoly like Facebook, rather than having these very difficult conversations, we think the solution, and we've seen this with banks, that if everything is more transparent, this is going to magically restore trust. This isn't the way trust works. More transparency doesn't equal more trust. There's kind of a cap. Think about the definition that we talked about, the definition of trust. Trust is a confident relationship to the unknown. If we need things to be transparent, we've kind of given up on trust. Highly transparent societies, highly transparent. Think of personal relationships, friends that you might know where they need to know every single thing about their partner. Organizations where you have mass CCs on emails or like 22 people in a meeting, all in the spirit of transparency. These are low trust organizations. 
So I think one of the dangerous things that's really taken hold, that's become part of this narrative that trusts in crisis, is that if everything becomes more transparent, as a society, we're going to have more trust. I think this is a terrible end goal. Transparency isn't this moral high ground. It's actually the opposite of building a high trust society. So if transparency isn't the end goal, what is? Botsman has an alternate suggestion. It's trustworthiness. And there are four parts to that. Be competent, be reliable, be benevolent, and most importantly, have integrity. Integrity is like the holy grail. If you think about situations, it can be political situations, romantic situations, all kinds of situations, where trust wobbles is when integrity breaks down. Think of, go back to the Facebook example. Integrity is not just about honesty and fairness. Integrity is about a fundamental question. Do your stated intentions align with mine? Do your intentions align with mine? And when there's a misalignment of intentions, or when we fool people inauthentic about our intentions, that is corrosive to trust. Now, these four traits, they're very hard to assess in humans. And as I said, untrustworthy people are very good at manipulating, sending signals that confuse us around these traits. Think of Dory in The Dodgy Nanny, right? She was competent and she was reliable. You could even argue that she cared. I'm not sure her intentions were aligned with my parents. Now, this is hard in humans. It becomes even harder when we're trying to judge the trustworthiness of machines. Botsman tells this funny story about her daughter, Grace. Grace learned how to use Alexa, that's Amazon's voice-controlled virtual assistant, when she was just three. Grace started with a simple question for Alexa. What's the weather like outside? A lot of questions about the weather. But this is actually something very normal we do with technology. We test it with things that we're familiar with. Then she asked Alexa to play music from the movie Sing. Which is her favorite movie. So we heard the soundtrack from Sing and then Frozen over and over again. Then Grace used Alexa to order something. She figured this out on her own and ordered her favorite treat, blueberries. And she couldn't believe when they arrived, right? Like any of you got young children will know they have no power and control in their life. So she can speak to a speaker and these things are going to arrive at her home. It was like magic. Then things got interesting. Grace asked Alexa what she should wear that day. Alexa used its built-in camera to rate Grace's furry hat and giraffe purse. Then Alexa offered to sell Grace some complimentary accessories. Alexa made a sales pitch and a fashion critique to a three-year-old. Botsman says technology doesn't simply do things for us anymore. It decides things like whether or not our outfit looks good, and whether it can sell us some new accessories. Now, when technology is doing things, you only need to assess, is it competent and reliable? When technology is making decisions, you have to start to understand its integrity, its intentions, its benevolence. How on earth do I teach the intentions of Amazon to a three-and-a-half-year-old? So this is a real challenge that we face, is how do we start to trust the intentions of machines? One of the things, though, 
that we tend to do, and we all do it as users, as citizens, as consumers, is we outsource this responsibility. That we talk about technology like it's something above us, that it controls us. That we blame what's happening, say in elections, and misinformation, we blame it on the platforms. And a lot of the issues actually lie with us. Because one of the things that we do in our lives, one of the reasons why many of us even have Alexa in the bedroom, is we let convenience trump trust in so many areas of our lives. I did this just the other day. An Uber pulled up. I really didn't want to get in that car. I looked at the thing, it said 4.7. I was really late. I jumped in the car. I let convenience trump trust. And so one of the things I think we need to do, and this is actually an empowering way of thinking about fixing problems, is to slow down. We are living in an age of trust on speed. And efficiency and speed are the enemy of trust. Trust actually needs some friction. It needs for us to find the right information, to ask the right questions, to slow down and to say, is this person, is this thing, is this product, is this piece of information, is it worthy of our trust? Trust cannot be automated by technology. It can't be fixed by compliance and regulation. Trust lies with us. We make the decisions as to who we give our trust to. And every time we think about this, I think we are taking control and trying to preserve what really is a fragile and precious asset, trust. Thank you very much. Rachel Botsman is author of Who Can You Trust? She lectures at Oxford University and spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival last year. This year's event runs June 20th through the 29th. Finally today, a $50 million adult funhouse is coming to Denver next year. At least that's one way to describe Meow Wolf. The Santa Fe Company is bringing its immersive art installations here. After I went to the one in New Mexico, I kept trying to find the words to describe it, like these folks. Maybe if I were the original Alice in Wonderland and fell through the rabbit hole, maybe that would be something like this. It's like... A million different dimensions in one building. Well, not only is Meow Wolf coming to Denver, it's also expanding as a music company. Earlier this month, New Mexico singer-songwriter Carlos Medina released his debut album, El Cantador, the first album produced in-house by Meow Wolf. Medina has been called the Tom Waits of Mariachi. But until the Meow Wolf collaboration, he didn't have any professional recordings. Medina recently stopped by the CPR Performance Studio to share some music off the new record, including a song he wrote nearly 20 years ago, No Le Digan. Escúchenme bien, 
todos mis amigos Les voy a contar mis penas Hasta embriagarme La mujer que quise Me dejó por otro Y yo desde entonces Me he echado a la perdición New Mexican mariachi performer Carlos Medina. He's the first recording artist for the art company Meow Wolf. His debut album, El Cantador, is out now. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.